0: We are in the midst of a journey together this year in 2017. I know some have been in and been out, so let me catch you up. We're talking about the doctrine of Scripture. And I thought for the first four weeks, what I would do is pick these chair texts, these really important passages that speak specifically of Scripture, and I would preach through them. But what I'm going to do after I finish that is start at the very beginning, and I'm going to be talking about everything that you ever wanted to know When it comes to the Bible, okay, so the questions that we're going to be answering are, how did we get the Bible? How do we know it's true and how can we trust it? Why are some books chosen and others rejected? What's the big picture of the Bible story? How do I read the Bible? How do I interpret each book of the Bible? Those types of questions. We're going to be starting that in just a few weeks where we start at the very beginning In fact, I've even prayed of how to go through this. It'll probably be a little bit more lecture-based. We'll have fill-in-the-blank listening guides so you have notes to kind of go through so you don't wear your hand out taking notes. And uh, we're just going to just answer every question this year that you have had about how it is that we got from the mind of God to the book that you hold in your hand right here. But before we get there, we've been answering specific questions about the Bible using the Bible. All right, if you missed the first two weeks that we decided to start doing this, we talked about the origin of scripture in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, and the definition that we came up with based on that passage is this. We said the Holy Scriptures are written eyewitness accounts of actual historical events confirmed by the prophetic word of God as men spoke and wrote them from the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we talked about 2 Peter chapter 1 being the perfect text that tells us that this Bible just didn't come from the imagination of man, but the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. And then in our second week together, the purpose of Scripture, we looked at Psalm 19, one of my favorite passages of the Old Testament, verses 7 through 11, and the definition that we came up with for the purpose of Scripture is this, the purpose of Scripture is to offer special revelation of God's righteous standards To an unrighteous world and eternally reward those who pursue his righteous standards through saving faith in Jesus Christ. I've been pointing to this week after week after week. We talked about it this morning. all right? When it comes to how God has revealed himself to the world. I I pray that we know this, that we know this, that we know this. There's general revelation. That's God revealing himself through the world through nature. And general revelation shows us that a God does exist. I cannot help in a 24-hour period to see a world where the sun goes up and comes down really as the earth is revolving around the sun and say there has, there has to be a creator who put all of that in play. It points, it screams over and over and over. There is a God, there is a God, there is a God with every rising of the sun, with every rising of the moon, with all the birds in the air and the fish of the sea and the trees, everything that we have. You know, I love it again with our TNT boys on Wednesday nights because as we talk about general revelation, they all start throwing things at me. Well, Mr. Bo, we have trees because we have oxygen and we have this because we have that. And and everything has order and everything has purpose. And everything points to the fact that there is a God. But if that's all we had, we would know that a God exists, but we would know nothing about Him. We would know nothing about His heart. We would know nothing about His mind. We would know nothing about His desires. We would probably even struggle to think of God as actually a person. Some people think of God as just a being. He's a transcendent being, but he doesn't have a mind, he doesn't have emotions, he doesn't have a will. But the scriptures, they show us something completely different. I mean, isn't it amazing to think that your creator is a person? A person capable of love? A person capable of communion? A person capable of relationship? I mean, that's the greatest of all news. I remember several years ago, I, I had a girlfriend who lost her, uh, her mother at a very young age. And then as we were, uh, we, were, we were dating, shortly after we broke up, she lost her father. She had no more parents on this earth. Young woman. She was in her early 20s. And I remember her calling me and just telling me how utterly alone she felt. And I said, you know, I just hope this, this, this drives you into the arms of your heavenly father. That we do actually have God as our father, We actually have a divine parent who loves us and knows us and cares for us. And if we did not have the Bible, we would not know anything about him other than there is a God who exists, but he's just a plain generic God that we cannot reach out to and have communion with at all. So that is the origin and the purpose of Scripture. But tonight, we're headed in another direction. We're going to be talking about the nature of of Scripture. And then next week, God willing, we'll finish up with what is the blessing of Scripture. And I'm picking specific texts that speak boldly to this doctrine of Scripture. So tonight, we're going to be Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, as we talk about the nature of Scripture. And here's what I want to say before we turn to that passage. What I want to say is that well-intentioned pastors of contemporary churches... And there's a lot of them popping up all over the place. Statesboro is a hotbed for those contemporary churches. And some of them I heard are outstanding, by the way. Uh, They sometimes use the word relevant. Come and worship with us because we teach relevance in our church. However, they also claim that most traditional Bible teaching churches don't deal with significant issues that affect us today. But if the Bible comes from the mouth of an eternal God isn't it as relevant today as it's ever been? If this is God's Word, is it not as relevant to us now as it was the day it was penned by its original authors? The real issue is understanding the nature of Scripture. So what can the Bible teach us about its very nature and how should we be responding to this truth? That is the question that is posed to us tonight as we consider the nature of Scripture. And for us to find the answer, let's turn again to Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 12 through 13. Again, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. And if you would stand once again out of the reading and the reverence of God's holy, infallible, and errant word, we're in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Hear the word of our Lord, starting in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its heat, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we love you. And thank you and praise you for this day that you have made. Father, what a joy it is to open your word for the very reasons that we just spoke moments ago. That you are a person who desires to be known, has clearly revealed who you are, and has offered us to have eternal communion with you through your Son. Father, I pray that we would just enjoy and just relish this time together as we open up your word and consider the nature of your holy scriptures they are, they are supernatural, miraculous, revelation given to us. Help us to understand the nature of your word that we may be obedient to your word and know you in a greater way. All these things we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. As always, as we dive into Hebrews chapter 4, I think it, it's uh, responsible for us to take just a minute and talk about the context here in chapter 4. Uh, Hebrews. Great book. Uh, We talk often about the fact the author is anonymous. We don't know quite who it is, uh, but we do know whoever it is. He is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is God's saturated word. And as we look here in chapter number four, right before we get to this passage, we're seeing the author talk over and over and over about the disobedience of Israel, and because of their disobedience, they could not enter into a Sabbath rest. And then it gets to pointing directly towards Christians, and the author says, you do well to be obedient to God so that you can enter that rest that Israel never had an opportunity to enter into. And so the author's talking specifically about this Sabbath rest and about being obedient to God. In fact, in the very beginning of that passage, it said, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then in verse 12, off to the races. The author begins to talk about the very nature of Scripture. And I want to make three points about the nature of Scripture and kind of build on that the way I've been doing the past couple of weeks. And so here's the first thing that I would like to say in terms of what this passage can teach us, and that is this. Number one, first part of verse 12, the Holy Scriptures are God's living and active Word. All right, the Holy Scriptures are God's living and active Word. First part of verse 12, for the Word of God is living and active Again, this squashes the idea of those contemporary churches that say, well, what we teach is relevance in our church. All right, Those type of churches often don't depend upon the Word of God because they think the way to draw a crowd, the way to grow people into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ is to take issues of the, of the day, social issues, and just discuss them in the church. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as that does not take the place of the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. Because this is as relevant today as it has ever been. And the reason that I know that is because God Himself says His Word is living and it's active. There is nothing about that that is past tense. It was before. It it is today. It will always be. Living and active words from the mouth of our very Creator. This is not word that comes from human inspiration. If it was... Alright, as soon as we evolve as human beings, it would be a thing of the past. But it's divine inspiration. And God is eternal. Therefore, His Word is eternal. And isn't it amazing? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've preached since August here, and some, one of the Sunday school teachers will come up to me and say, Man, what you hit on is just exactly what I've been hitting on in Sunday school class. Right, Brother Eddie? You've mentioned that a few times. And that has nothing to do with me or Brother Eddie. That's just the Word of God being living and active, speaking to the individual conditions of our lives. You know, I really believe this. With the exception of cultural tradition and technological advances, we're dealing with the same stuff they were 2,000 years ago. Yeah, they didn't have iPhones. I get that. Yeah, they didn't have nice church buildings. They didn't have building and grounds committees when they were meeting in church homes as the church in Jerusalem was first being established. All right, so we would have had to find something else for Coach Monty to do, for sure. But with the exception of cultural traditions and technological advances, we're dealing with the same stuff. We're struggling. You know, further on in the book of Hebrews, it talks about not denying the assembling of ourselves, right? And that's something we still struggle with today. As I see the faithful ones here today, and we talk about, well, there's a big game coming up in a few hours. There's, there's no doubt as to why my generation is completely absent with a, a few remnant here, right? All right? They were struggling with that back then. People not coming to church. That's not a, a generational thing. That's been a problem since the very beginning. The Bible speaks to those things because it's living and it's active, the Bible is eternally alive. What it said 2,000 years ago, it says today. And it speaks to us the very same way. And it also has an active purpose. All right, this, this gives me so much comfort as a preacher that no matter how much I screw it up behind the pulpit, no matter how much I try to preach the Word and be faithful to it, no matter what I do to foul it up, God's Word is still going to achieve its purpose. Amen? Amen. All right. Isaiah 55:11. So shall my word that goes out from my mouth it will not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what I which I that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing in which I send it. That means that as soon as God's Word is proclaimed and it is sent out, it will not come back void. It will achieve what it was sent out to do. And my job and the job of anyone who teaches or preaches and opens this book is simply to proclaim truth. And as truth is proclaimed, it will come back unvoided. It will come back actively used for the purpose of God and the glory of God. And, and, and Brother Larry, you and I were talking in the truck this afternoon. We don't know all the things that God's doing in the hearts and minds of men and women. That's why i don't ever pay attention to who comes down during the altar call and who doesn't. Because you don't know what's happening in the pews. But I do know this. If I'm being faithful to preach the truth, God's Spirit's going to use God's Word to change God's people. Alright? It's living and active. And God sends it out. And all He's asking me to do is to be a conduit. To send it out and let God use it the way only God can. That's why, I'll, let me also say this, and I know that I, I speak to people of like mind in this room, but I'm telling you it's coming. Churches are getting away from the preaching of the Word of God because they believe this particular format of teaching is no longer worthy, it's no longer effective. Well, it was effective 2,000 years ago. It's going to be effective today and effective as long as God's church is here because we are called to proclaim the truth of the Word of God. It's living. It's active. God will do what only God can do. We're just called to stand up and proclaim it. So number one, the Holy Scriptures are God's living and active Word. Not only that, the second part of verse 12 teaches us this. Number two, this living Word discerns the truth of the human heart. This living word discerns the truth of the human heart. The second part of verse 12 says, "sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart." Now, I have seen scholars and preachers try to walk through that passage and they look at soul and spirit and joints and marrow and they try to, to overdo it. Let me just let me just get through this. When you when I read that passage what that basically says is the Bible gets through all the red tape it gets through your flesh all the way to the soul and the core of who you are and that core is the heart the core of you is the human heart your heart is the steering wheel of your soul it is the real you you can't put lipstick on the heart you can put lipstick on the outside you can put a veneer on the outside. You can show the world something that you're really not, but your heart will all, always tell the truth on you. And the Bible is what discerns that, the heart, the human heart. The Bible is what peels the layers back so you are naked before God and your heart is showing its truth. Uh, I want to share two passages that speak specifically about the human heart. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it fro- flow the springs of life. In fact, that's the passage I chose to preach at our baccalaureate service last May because one of the worst things that comes out during graduation time and Christians who are, who are good in, have good intentions say these things, but parents and grandparents put their arms around their kids at graduation and say, no matter what happens, follow your heart. Follow your heart. But the Bible says that the heart is wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? The Bible doesn't say to follow your heart. The Bible says to guard your heart and follow God, Amen. right? Because the, the heart, if we follow the heart, it will lead us astray Amen. because all of us are born with imperfect hearts. I, I, I use this example when I was a, a youth pastor, and we laugh about this all the time. Dina can tell you this more than anybody. I said, uh, and I talked about the mind, but this one also deals with the heart. I said, imagine that your, your mind is a, is a glass container, and when you were born that glass container would contain both white and black marbles and white marbles were those pure intentional thoughts and the and the black ones were the evil intentional thoughts and every single one of us is born with white and black marbles we're not as bad as we could be but we're not as good as we should be We are born tainted. We are born sinful. We are born depraved. It's a part of our fallen nature because of our ancestors, Adam and Eve. We're born into this sinful nature. As I said this morning, you're born running away from God. That's why we have to be saved. I think sometimes we think that we started off good and then veered off the path. No. As I look at my daughter and I hold my two and a half month old daughter, I know that if Jesus Christ has not become the Lord and Savior of her life, there's nothing I can do. Jesus is her only hope. Jesus is her only hope. And why? The human heart. It's wicked. Now, before I became a Christian, I don't think I ever thought about that, and we'll talk about that in a second. But let me just read the second uh, passage that really points to the truth of the human heart. Luke chapter 6, verse 45. Jesus hits the nail on the head. He kind of takes the same truth and hits it from a different angle. He says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good... And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That means that eventually, you open your mouth long enough, people are going to get to know the real you because out of the mouth comes what is really in the heart. And this helps us to overcome what I call the I'm-a-good-person syndrome. In fact, I think most Christians go through this in the early stages of their life, their Christian life. When I was first a Christian and before I came to faith in Christ... I really did start to think that maybe I was not as bad as the world wants to make sinners out to be. Again, every Sunday we read that passage, right? First John 1, if we say we had no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Well, I used to think, how bad am I really? I mean, gosh, I haven't made the 6 o'clock news for killing anybody, right? I'm, I'm still in school, my grades are decent, I respect my parents, I mean, how bad am I Really? I had to become a christian and had to really get into this word to see the depth of my evil and that's a powerful word we don't like to say we don't like to say that about ourselves that we're evil but you know what there's there's some there's some cobwebs deep deep down in the pit of my soul that i just don't want to admit and they come up at the strangest times all right especially now as a parent I'm learning so much selfishness that has been buried so far deep within that it's taken a wife and a child to bring to the surface. And God's saying, see, Bo, I'm cleansing you from this, but there is some wickedness and some evil and some deep-rooted selfishness in you. And I'm using this, this, this gift I've given you and your family to show you that you've got a lot of work to do to become more like Jesus Christ. And it's the Bible that shows us those things, the depth of our hearts, you know, let me let me just share a couple of more verses that really speak to how the Bible discerns our thoughts and intentions of our hearts. I'm going to share two that convicts every single one of us. All right, the first is James chapter 3 verses 8 through 11. It talks about gossip, right? One of the classic texts in the New Testament about gossip, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Doesn't that happen every Sunday? I've mentioned this, this illustration before, but how many times have you come into a church praising God, and 20 minutes later you're cussing somebody out in the parking lot because they cut you off? Yeah, you're praising God. And you're you're cussing somebody under your breath at Bedrick's because they jumped in front of you in the buffet line. Why did that happen? Because it came from the depth of your heart. It didn't just come out of thin air. That's, that's, That's how you really feel. That's showing the depth of your heart. It's always been there, but life opportunities bring it to the surface. We struggle with that. I remember a book I've been reading recently with Brother Eddie. We've been reading through in the morning, Conformed to His Image. Um, we've been reading uh, this, this great illustration. Uh, the author says that our tongues are the dipsticks to our heart, and our hearts are the real version of us. So when you know you're changing your oil, and you want to know the level of your oil, you pull the dipstick out and see how much oil is in there. Well, the tongue is the dipstick to the heart. The tongue reveals to us what's really in there, what level of oil we got there in the heart, what level of evil we have. And you know, if there's one area specifically in my life that I know that I've struggled to get a handle on is my tongue. It's tough, it's frustrating. Because sometimes when you're talking with others and and you're, you're discussing stories and the facts of what's taken place in the last week and they say, how so and so? And you kind of give them the details. It's so easy to glide right on into a good 15, 20 minutes of gossip. Well, I can't believe she said that. Did you hear what she said? I know. What is wrong with her? Did you see what she posted on Facebook? I can't believe this. I can't believe. And 10 minutes into it, you're thinking, how did I get into this conversation where I'm, I'm, I'm basically trashing this person's reputation? They don't know it because I'm in the confines of my own house. But how did I get here? Well, it's always been there. It's just coming out. I mean, that's convicting. When I know how, how hard it is not to gossip even for one week of my life, You know what that says to me? That says, I'm a sinner. And I need the grace of God with every breath I take. And it's the Bible that continues to convict me of these things. If the the book of James was not there and I had never read about gossip, maybe I would have said, well, gossip is not as bad as I think it is. But then I read James and God says, no, it is. It is as bad as you think it is. And you are struggling with it because you're a sinner. But Let me give you one more example. This is Monty Tillman's favorite verse. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. He said he said last week that he trembles every time he reads it. Right? The fruit of the spirit. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. So the next time <laughs> the next time you find yourself starting to think that you're falling into the I'm a good person syndrome hold this out as your standard and say from the time that you went to bed to the time that you got up to what you did with every bit of oxygen in your lungs this very day were you full of nothing but love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control or are you struggling in one of those areas all right if anything else i don't know someone who can say they are fully self-controlled I mean, in, uh, we just said gossip is an area where we struggle to tame the tongue. How can we tame the tongue? All right? We, we struggle with self-control in that area. All right? I'll be honest with you. Sometimes, and, and we, we make jokes about this as Baptists, but sometimes we eat more than we should eat. We have a lack of self-control. And that's not exactly something that God is fond of. It's a, it's a struggle. All right? Sometimes we, we struggle to have joy in times of suffering. But we're called to rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice, the Lord is near. Right? He tells us that in Philippians. These fruits make it very difficult for us to stop and stick our chest out and say that we're good people. The Bible lays us bare before a holy God. We fail the fruit inspection. Right? I think about this all the time. If you try to go to Florida on I-95... And you have anything bigger than just a regular vehicle, the state um, agricultural institution, whatever that may be, they'll pull you over and make you go through a a checkpoint. I remember when I moved to Daytona Beach, Florida, I had a U-Haul, was moving my stuff down there. And the state uh, agricultural inspection crew tried to pull me over on the side of the road. I couldn't get the padlock open fast enough. And I had nothing in there but a bunch of clothes and books and I don't know what else. But uh, they wanted to check my truck to make sure I wasn't smuggling agriculture. I wasn't smuggling fruit into Florida or smuggling fruit out of Florida. They They were the fruit inspectors. Well, I think about being a divine fruit inspector. It's a scary thing if you inspect your own fruit because you'll find the crop's not as good as maybe you hoped it would be. It gives us something to strive for, but it also keeps us humble. And that's what the Word of God does. It discerns the truth of the human heart. Anytime I begin to think that I'm really starting to catch my groove when it comes to being more like Jesus Christ, if I need to be convicted, this is one passage that will do it every time. You know, even though Jesus Christ, they said, there's nothing about His physical form that we would be attracted to Him. Isn't it amazing how these these fruits are something He embodied perfectly for 33 years? I mean, don't you think he would have drawn some, some attention with the fact that he was always full of love and joy, peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? I mean, that's just amazing. And that's who we follow. And that's the Savior that we desperately need in our lives. So number two, this living word discerns the truth of the human heart. Again, the heart is the true version of who you are. Before we move on to number three, I want to I keep that truth ever before us. Because if we let the world interpret truth for us, we'll begin to think of the human heart. And I've said this before behind this pulpit. We'll think of the human heart as a Valentine's Day method of of what the heart really is. That it's all just purely emotion. Well, emotions come from the heart. But the Bible cares a lot more about the heart than sometimes we do. Because the heart is the real version of you. Doesn't it say in Samuel that that, uh, man looks at outward appearance, but it's God who looks at the heart. God who looks at the heart. One of the best illustrations I've ever seen was Abby Lanier when I was a youth pastor. She, uh, she made like 15 cupcakes. Uh, for, it, was a, it was a morning devotion. She made like 15 cupcakes, and I think f- uh, five or six of them were filled with cream, and like four or five of them were filled with cotton balls. And the ones with cotton balls actually looked better on the outside. They had all the, all the sprinkles on them and the extra icing on the top. And I grabbed one of the ones that looked better on the outside, I'll be honest with you, and I bit into that sucker and spit out a cotton ball. And she used that exact passage, for, I think it was from 1 Samuel, that says that man looks at the outward appearance, but it's God who looks upon the heart. It was a good illustration, I still remember it all these years later. But isn't that true? I don't want to eat any more cotton balls. It was a good word then, it's a good word now. So that leads us to our third and final point when it comes to discerning the nature of Scripture. Number three, when the truth of the human heart is exposed, man's sin holds him accountable before a holy judge. All right, when the truth of the human heart is exposed, man's sin holds him accountable before a holy judge. Verse 13 says this, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Holy standards reveal a holy creator. And if he created us, he's also worthy to judge us, judge, judge us at the end of our lives. So there's one thing that we can think about with scripture is that it brings about accountability. Accountability. We, we want to suppress the fact that this is true, but we can't do that. In fact, my, Brother Monty, you and I were talking about this this morning before the Sunday school hour. And I think I even mentioned this this morning during the worship hour. We want to find a way, a loophole of some kind to say that this Bible is not true because if it's not true, then we're not held accountable by it. All right? Isn't it easy to take things that we don't like about the Bible and say, well, that's just, that's all culture. All right? Those that don't want to fully affirm the authority of the Word of God, you know, certain liberal denominations who continue to veer further and further to the left, basically what they'll say is, well, there are bits and pieces of the Scripture that you can trust. But there are, no, there are other parts of scripture that have to do more with a patriarchal society where man suppressed the ability for women to do certain things and, and, and sexual immorality was at its worst. And things are not exactly the way they were then. And therefore, what's true then is not necessarily true now. Well, why is it the people that continue to try to interpret these things? Because if they can disprove it, they're not held accountable. It's that simple. If you're able to disprove the Bible, then it's nothing more than just another book on the shelf and you're not going to be judged according to this. But if it is the Word of God and we can't just dismiss it and it's true from beginning to end and God has revealed it to us that we would know Him and that we would know ourselves, then we should know at the end of our lives we're going to be held accountable for all the things that we've said, thought, and done and we'll stand before the Creator who has given us this Word. And that should keep us humble. That should make us tremble. All right? We we suppress the fact that we're guilty before God. And this points us to a Savior, which I'll talk about in a minute. But before I get to that, let me just say this. Everyone in the world, Christian and non-Christian alike, we know something's not right with us and something's not right with the world. All right? Every time that you ever come to a funeral and you look at a corpse lying in a casket, you know that does not look right. It, it should never look right. No matter how many funerals I preach, I never want to look into a casket. And I never want to say that looks normal because it shouldn't look normal. Death came because of sin. All right, The wages of sin is death. And it should not look normal to us because that was not God's original intention for us. But when we do see death and how inevitable it is, it should remind us that we are carrying around This guilt and we're suppressing this guilt and this idea that we will die one day and we will be judged all right how do we suppress this truth i think there's three ways that we typically suppress it this is christians and non-christians alike okay to suppress that 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 hard truth that we're going to die and be judged what do we do well we compare ourselves to others when we think about being judged we say well i know one day i'm going to stand before god but Gosh, I mean, I gotta be doing okay because I'm better than half the people over here. All right, as if God's gonna judge on some, He's gonna grade on some kind of bell shaped curve. Well, if everybody is bad and I'm not as bad as everybody else, my judgment won't be that bad. It's a way that we suppress the truth. All right, how about this? We think that what's done in the dark is also out of the sight of God. Somehow we tell ourselves, if no one has caught me doing ungodly things, then maybe God himself didn't even see that. All right. We know it up here, but down here we, 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 we tell ourselves God didn't see that. And then third, we think if we do good enough, we can outweigh the bad that we've already done. Have you ever met someone like that? They're convicted over what they've done wrong in their life, so they say, for the rest of my life, my good is going to outweigh my bad. I'm going to outlive all of my sin by living nothing but righteousness, and maybe when I die, they'll cancel each other out. Every good deed for every bad deed, and then when I die, i will be kind of breaking even. Well, those are just ways that we suppress guilt and a conscience that tells us every day that we're going to be held accountable before a holy God. And this passage right here tells us no matter how bad we try to suppress it, no matter how much we run, like we talked about this morning, no matter how much we run from God, this passage tells us we're going to be standing naked. Just like we came into this world, we're going to be standing naked when we come out of this world from the same one who created us. Again, let me read verse 13. It says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him." To whom we must give account. That leads us to our conclusion and also to our Savior. So let me talk about our conclusion and then I'll walk through just a word that preaches the gospel. All right, our conclusion is this when it comes to the nature of Scripture the Holy Scriptures are God's living and active word. This word discerns the truth of the human heart and exposes the sin of man, holding him accountable before a holy judge. Okay, let me read it one more time for those listening on podcast. The holy scriptures are God's living and active word. This word discerns the truth of the human heart and exposes the sin of man, holding him accountable before a holy judge. All right, this actually is not good news. It points to the good news all right it would would it be good news if I just stopped and said okay that's great let's pray out and go home all right we know that the holy scriptures are God's active and living word they discern the truth of the heart that we're exposed of our sin and we're going to be held accountable let's pray no it doesn't stop there the reason that God Discerns the evilness of our heart. The reason that God lays us naked before His holiness is that He's leading us to the cross. He's leading us into the arms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because if you come into contact with this word and you measure yourself by this standard, again, we become self fruit inspectors and we begin to see where we fall short. It will always show us a need for a Savior. Always. Show us a need for a Savior. And where that is what we need, the Bible is more than happy to provide. The Bible points to the cross of Jesus Christ in every book of the Bible. If not directly, certainly indirectly. It shows us the nature of humanity and the need for redemption, the need for salvation, the fact that we need Jesus. We're going to have to take up an account for our lives, this passage says. And I do not want to stand before God and take up an account of everything I've said wrong and everything I've done wrong and everything I've thought wrong. But the Bible tells us that when we place our saving faith in Jesus Christ, the account that is taken up is the account of Jesus. His perfect life, His sacrificial death, His supernatural resurrection, His heavenly ascension, And eventually, his second coming here on earth. And we will stand before God, and the account of Jesus Christ will be read, and we will receive credit. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. All right, the great reformer Martin Luther said that that's 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 the exchange. He takes on all that we just talked about, everything that the Bible lays bare, all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt. Jesus says, I'll take that, and I'll take it on the cross, and I'll I'll drink every last drop of the cup of wrath that is poured out upon me, and in response, what do I give to you? Perfection. I give you the perfection that this book requires, the, the, the perfection that this book reveals in the holy standard of God, and all Jesus asks us to do is trust and obey. Trust and obey. That's what the Bible does. It constantly points us to Jesus. It does it from Genesis to Revelation. This book is a hymn book. It's all about Him. H-I-M. That's what this book is. It points us to the Lord Jesus Christ over and over and over again. That's the purpose. Constantly pointing us into the arms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But let us not forget its nature. As we draw to a close, it is living, and it is active, and it is discerning, and it shows us the depth of our hearts, it shows us the flaws in our humanity, it shows us our accountability before the holy God who is perfect, but it should always lead us into the arms of a loving God who is full of grace and truth. If only we'd place our faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that that would be the true reason that we have this nature of Scripture today, is that it draws us closer and closer to Jesus. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you that you would come to such low depths just to reveal your greatness to a wicked creation, Father, and all of our sinfulness and all the ways that we fall short. You loved us so much that you revealed to us who we are and who you are through your word. And Father, you also revealed to us an opportunity to be saved through your Son. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the salvation that you have made exclusively through the cross at Calvary through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you for the truth of your word, Father. I thank you as we seek to become more like Jesus, that we can cling to the truth of this word and by nature know that it's living and that it's active and that it discerns the intentions of our hearts and then like scum at the bottom of a pond, you bring it to the surface because you want to clean and refine it. Make us new, Father. Cleanse us, renew us. Continue to sanctify us in your truth because your word is truth. Father, I thank you for all that have set aside time tonight to come and consider the nature of scripture. I pray a special blessing and traveling mercies upon everyone in this room. I pray you bless them and the families they represent until we can come together again. We'll give you all the praise, honor, and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, Amen. amen.